Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to the Weekly Grill. And our guest today is Ian McConnell. To say Ian has a, an intriguing background and career in the beef industry is putting it mildly. Ian is from a long-established beef family in Queensland. He went to Gatton College and did further study in America at Colorado State University. Ian was named Australia's Beef Industry Rising Champion in 2011. And then he stunned many by joining the World Wildlife Fund, the WWF, where he rose to become WWF's beef industry leader. WWF needs little introduction because for years it led the charge against land clearing, especially in Queensland. Now, Ian McConnell is with Tyson Foods, the giant American food empire with close to 140,000 workers and turnover well in excess of $70 billion Australian. So, Ian McConnell, you're on the grill. Welcome. Thanks, Kerry. Nice to be here. Now, you joined WWF, the World Wildlife Fund. Should I ask if you're a vegetarian? Because I want to ask, how do you like your steak? Well, the steak, steak definitely medium rare. Um, I'm a fan of rump steak as well. Oddly, it's, it's an odd little characteristic we have in Australia that we uh, we tend to like our rumps more than our ribs, like they do in the US. But yeah, it was it was an interesting career move jumping over to WWF from the DPI as it was at the time. Did you have any uh, or many barbecues with your colleagues from WWF? Or they were they all eating toffee or uh, alumi cheese? Were they? No, WWF. You know they. Uh, are very good advocates for good production. So, uh, and what they do really interestingly in their conservation team is pull people from the industries in which they want to engage. So, they pull the beef boy into the beef team. They pull people from the forestry industry into their forest teams, uh, fishermen into their fisheries teams. Uh, it's a lot easier to teach someone conservation than it is uh, to teach them uh, the ins and outs and the, the culture of an industry. So. You know, the team that I worked off or worked as part of was very much people from on the ground, uh, you know, with a broad range of different commodities that the group worked on. Right, so that's how you got there. I mean, your journey to WWF, you didn't apply for a job, you were actually headhunted? Well, it was interesting. I was working with DPI as an extension officer, uh, you know, had been for nine years, and then just looking for a change, the, the WWF job had exactly the same job title as the one I had at DPI. So I did apply and I, I rang the number at the bottom of the job ad and spoke to a bloke by the name of Rob Cairns who became my boss. And he was sitting uh, in Washington, D.C., about to head into the White House, I think, for a meeting. So I um, you know, automatically got a bit peaked as to what sort of doors the panda opens. And you know, in a couple of weeks' time, I was working alongside Rob and and probably only a matter of weeks after that was in Washington myself. Did it cause any angst? I mean, here you are a fifth-generation beef producer working for an organisation which is doing its best to, in many ways, inhibit the ability of beef producers to carry out their business. Uh, was, was there any personal feedback to you? Well, I think that the first one is I don't think WWF is really trying to inhibit the beef industry. What they're trying to do is is find a way where beef is part of the solution. And I think, you know, in the other areas I work in the industry, I think it's actually a pretty shared goal. 
but obviously as an advocacy group, they go about it in a different way. Um, but there was some angst, you know, even mum had, you know, different thoughts about it. But I think the, the people I worked with and the relationships I had with industry were, you know, mostly happy that someone like me was in the role, even if they weren't always happy with WWF. Yeah, what was your mission statement at WWF for your particular job? Uh, it was to try and find a way where we could recognise and reward sustainable beef production. So what we were trying to do was to create a consumer and customer-led pool for sustainably produced beef to create a driver for change on the ground. So to trying to find a way where farmers who were doing the right thing would be rewarded to encourage those who weren't uh, to start doing it in that way. So you're immersed with WWF. Uh, did you bring any of your skills and approach from your days with uh, DPI, for example? Did you uh, use any of your skills acquired there with WWF? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing we had to do was really understand what good beef production looked like. So, you know, having worked, you know, throughout central west Queensland and southeast Queensland, a lot of what I knew about what good beef production was was what we began asking for. You know, I was also delivering grazing land management workshops um, and some things for, for DPI. So a lot of what we were asking for were things that the industry itself was asking for. So we just tried to mould that in a way that customers and consumers could start to engage in. Uh, and it was, you know, I started at WWF at the time when the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef had just started and um, there was a chapter, you know, the Australian Roundtable, which later became the Australian Beef Sustainability Framework, had been set up. So we were already engaging with industry and customers right from the start. And it was it was a really interesting time because the the relationships that I had from industry uh, meant that we were able to hit the ground running and we had ready to go a whole suite of industry programs, things like GLM, the grazing BMP at the time, that were ready to start telling the story. It was just about how to make it work. I want to delve deeply into uh, the roundtable shortly, but did you the skills you acquired at WWF, you found them advantageous when you left and you now joined one of the biggest processors and marketers of uh, animal protein, Tyson Foods. Uh, so did you, the skills that you acquired at WWF, were they handy with Tyson Foods? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the real skill that WWF gives you uh, or that I developed there was the ability to communicate and to collaborate with people with different views. And we find that a lot, you know, even now, uh, now working with our suppliers and our customers, trying to align the views so that we're actually trying to tell the same story about our beef products through our supply chain. So, and also, you know, in my role at GRSB, trying to bring different views together, that the need for collaboration, the need to find the common ground uh, is something that WWF, you know, really needed to do because they were coming from outside the industry. So they worked on that quite a bit, as well as just broadly that communication skill. One thing WWF did a lot of was, was communicate and make sure their views and their positions were really clearly understood to stop some of the confusion that was out there. So that also helps a lot because as a as a customer of beef, we're having to talk to a lot of our suppliers and communicate some of the requests that are coming to us from our consumers. And more and more by the day, I suspect, such an essential part of the business these days. Yeah, it is. And we're, we're not only being asked a lot of questions about where our products come from and having to answer questions, but we're finding a lot of opportunity to tell stories. So the more stories we have, the more we're able to find out about the products we buy and the products we process, 
then uh, we're creating value in telling that story. You know, we have a goal to be the most sustainable and transparent food company, and we believe that transparency itself will add a lot of value. Now, here's a story for you. You, you from the Brisbane Valley, young fella, and you've just been appointed president of the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. It sounds very important. Uh, tell us, again, I mentioned the words mission statement. What was your mission statement for um, this roundtable? So the GRSB uh, mission statement is to see beef recognised as a, a vital part of a thriving food system. So we, we see beef as not just a, a necessary food, but as a production system and a, a place of employment for millions of people around the world that is essential for solving some of the world's biggest problems. Everything from climate change to biodiversity loss, the poverty reduction uh, to food security, and, and that beef is a necessity in the food system to be part of that solution. But on the flip side of that, you know, while we're, we're always going to promote good beef as part of the solution, it's also our view that no one should be looking more critically at what we do than we ourselves as an industry. And it's bringing the industry and, you know, in partnership and collaboration with external stakeholders, bringing us together to have those robust conversations and look at what is it we need to do better and how do we drive continuous improvement potentially at a faster rate so that beef is genuinely part of the solution. Let's take a quick break from On The Grill and we'll hear from our sponsor, Elenco Animal Health. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly with Corral Patriot and Silence insecticidal ear tags. Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Alanco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Alanco and find out how you can win the buffalo fly battle now. Welcome back. Our guest on the grill is Ian McConnell. He's president of the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Now, you've certainly got some big, big names there. It must mean something when you go to policymakers and uh, use the name the uh, Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef and mention all those stakeholders. Yeah, it does. You know, collectively, there's about two-thirds of the world's beef production and trade represented, either by the GRSB or its 12 regional roundtables. And in Australia, the, you know, our membership's growing as well. Meat and Livestock Australia, Cattle Council, as well as the Australian Beef Sustainability Framework are all members. So the industry itself is really well engaged here now. And what we've seen you know, last year, for example, with the UN Food System Summit, where there was potentially a real risk of products, you know, animal protein products being labelled as not part of a sustainable food system, the GRSB was able to play an important role in engaging in some of those key forums to help, you know, turn that conversation and give room for beef to be part of the solution and find its place on a sustainable plate. But we're developing a strategy right now, a lot of the late night and early morning calls around the world trying to work out how we continue to engage in that space around uh, you know, events like climate cop, uh, biodiversity cop, uh, into the governmental panels, so that we can um, ensure that you know, while there'll always be a bit of competition, everyone in this industry will try and grow their pie. Um, that the the size of the entire pie continues to grow um, for the beef industry. So, in what terms do you use uh, for the industry? Carbon free or carbon neutral? 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting because we have to deal with methane and methane, you know, has a slightly different piece of science around it in the fact that it's not cumulative in the atmosphere like carbon. We tend to talk about climate positivity and climate neutrality now rather than um, carbon because uh, that gives us a little bit more freedom to talk about the the role of methane in a natural um, methogenic cycle. So uh, we have a, we have a target, and we've set three targets. But one of those is a, a goal to have a 30% reduction in our climate footprint by 2030. And uh, we're currently working to baseline and set a strategy in place to achieve that. So I think um, if we, and we, if we talk about climate, you know we're actually talking about the outcome. We're not just talking about emissions, but we're actually talking about improving and, and modulating anthropogenic climate change rather than just dealing with emissions. There's a, there's a difference, of course, between uh, climate neutrality and uh, carbon neutrality, especially for our beef producers. Are we on the right track in Australian beef by going for carbon neutrality while the world appears to be heading towards a, a climate neutral goal? I think the carbon neutrality... Uh, Golf industry is a good one. There's no doubt, you know, whether it be in hindsight or looking forward, it, it's already played a positive role. You know, where we've seen the industry be recognised, you know, in places like UN Climate Week, um, Climate COP in um, Katowice in Poland, for example, you know, and even when I was at WWF, we would organise to have MLA speak on different events because of the ambition of that target. So it's played a very important role. I think you know, they're now talking about what are the interim steps towards carbon neutrality? Is climate neutrality an interim step or not? So there's some of that nuance to be resolved, but no doubt heading towards carbon neutrality, you know, in terms of the shared goal that humanity has to have to decarbonise our economy, um, it's still a very positive target. Uh, carbon neutrality by 2030, that's uh, the goal. And I'm told the beef industry is around 57% there, but a substantial chunk of that, 57%, is actually made up of savings from government-imposed land-clearing restrictions, given we can hardly replicate that in the next 10 years or so. Where will the next 43% of carbon neutrality come from? Yeah, well, we, we still have a net gain of forest uh, across the country, so we're going to see... Uh, still some more sequestration if we can get it accounted for properly coming from vegetation, so that'll play a small part, hopefully. Uh, but we're going to have to see some pretty big steps in improvements, uh, especially around methane emissions. So there's a lot of talk about asparagopsis and feed supplements to help reduce our um, methane emissions, but we're also going to have to look at efficiency. Uh, we're going to have to make sure that we don't have idle cattle so there's not wasted emissions in the system. You know, a cow that's not producing a calf is just producing emissions that don't end up in beef. Those idle cattle are going to have to be, um, you know, weeded out of the system. So there's big productivity gains that are going to have to be made as well. But methane is definitely the big piece that we're going to have to deal with because when we look, you know, at the baselining that was done in 2005, forests and methane were about equal in terms of their emissions profiles for the industry. So... A lot of the forest stuff has been um, whittled down. It's now methane's turn. Yeah, there's some promising uh, work being done in that area. But uh, do you agree with the carrot and stick approach uh, we have in Australia? By that, I mean telling grazies and farmers, you create the right vegetation and you will be rewarded? Um, I think the, the, the challenge is just how varied it 
it, it ends up being on the ground for the farmer in terms of how they can maintain productivity, whether or not they're in this type of landscape where vegetation adds positivity both for nature and for the business. Um, because in, in some landscapes, you know, especially in over-cleared areas in the south of the country, vegetation is a big boost to productivity, nature, et cetera, you know, and then carbon can almost be the co-benefit. In other parts, you know, the thickening of timber can have a real impact. So I think there's a lot of nuance once we get into that discussion that really almost comes down to property scale. So there needs to be flexibility in how the farmers are actually going to implement that. And for that, there needs to be some pretty clear and simple guidelines around how it can be accounted for so that farmers are more easily able to understand this. At the moment, it, it kind of feels like it's a really lucrative area for consultants more than it is for farmers. <laughs> yes, I've heard that too. I've also heard, I shouldn't be laughing at this, it's a very serious subject. I've heard cynics suggest carbon neutral beef, though, is a, is a bit like clean coal or healthy tobacco. What's your response to that sort of attitude? Oh, absolutely not. When we, when we look at, you know, if you look at Australia with its largest largest tropical savanna in the world exists here in Australia. If we look at the northern Great Plains of the US, the Pampas and the Llanos in South America, um, you know, we have grasslands around the world that are best used to produce food um, through ruminant upcycling. And if cattle are doing that in a way that's not adding to the climate challenge, then that should be, in my view, the most sustainable food on the plate. Uh, I don't think... When I look at other climate claims being made by other products, there is a potential for other foods to get to low uh, emissions, but I don't think anybody can get into the positivity, you know, in terms of supporting biodiversity alongside production, going beyond neutrality to net sequestration. I don't think anybody has the ability to get there like we do with especially extensive beef production, but we've seen models in place where those numbers coming from the extensive production actually carry through feedlots uh, and we're still ending up with uh, net positive uh, beef coming out at the end of a feedlot production system, which allows us to produce the product the consumer wants as well, especially in some of the developed countries, like especially in the US where they love that butter flavored beef. So um, I, I, don't, I don't fall into the trap of thinking that it's, it's just greenwashing. I, I genuinely think we have an opportunity to produce the most sustainable food that will exist. Time for a quick break, and this time we're hearing from our podcast partner, Kelly's Finance Group. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back. I'm with Ian McConnell. Uh, Ian, a couple of questions about Tyson Foods, your current employer and one of the biggest meat processors in the world. Tyson was an early and substantial investor in plant-based uh, protein. Why would a meat company want to do this? And, of course, how are sales and the market share going? Yeah, we are a protein company. So 
uh, our role is to produce protein to the world in cost-effective manners. And I think we're going to need to be pretty flexible in the way we provide protein to consumers. And like a lot of players in this space, we hold manufacturing sites that allow us to produce a varied number of products. And that, that's not just meat. You know, it's not just the chicken, beef, and pork products we produce, but we can also use these uh, facilities to produce products that consumers want. And there are consumers out there choosing to buy plant-based products. It's certainly not a, a choice that it's a better product. It's really just a response to a consumer demand. Uh, so uh, does it in any way for us, you know, become competition against our meat products? No, uh, it's just a way to ensure people uh, are having a choice when they go out to secure protein and to help choose us as Tyson to source, to source that. Beyond meat, of course, one of the biggest companies involved in the in the meat protein, or I beg your pardon, fake meat protein, shares were seriously shorted. In fact, they were the most shorted share in the United States on the American Stock Exchange at, at one time. Uh, it seems the, the money men are losing confidence in what is known as fake meat. I think there is a – it does seem to be a saturation in the market, but I think we're also at a pretty odd time. There's a lot of people falling back to comfort foods, uh, knowing and eating what they know and trust, especially you know around lockdowns and the pandemic. So I think we're probably a little bit, uh, a little bit early in the journey to know where it ends up. But uh, in my experience, what the products have done have brought vegetarians back to the barbecue. They haven't moved meat eaters to a vegetarian product. I think they call them uh, flexitarians, Ian, don't they? These days, don't they? Flexitarians? Yeah, aren't we all flexitarians? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, <laughs> I, I think it's an odd claim. I, you know, I'll eat, I'll eat anything that's in front of me when I'm hungry, so I consider myself a flexitarian, but I am... I do, I do struggle at times, you know, when you look at the data, and Meat and Livestock Australia has got some great data on this, on, on how many vegetarians eat bacon, for example. Yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, I have to ask you this question. What's your attitude to the substantial industry reaction to protein producers labelling a bean product, for example, as some sort of meat-like, with a meat-like name? Oh, I, I think it, it's a bit confusing. I understand the confusion. But I also understand the argument that, you know, they're trying to also portray this is what you would do with the product. So, you know, the arguments that came out in the Senate inquiry, I think, were justified on both sides. But the, the need to provide uh, a little bit more clarity about what's actually in the product when people are buying it, I think, could be more useful with some clearer labelling guidelines. Final question. If you were suddenly given the power to make one law around Australia a law governing sustainable beef production or carbon neutrality or whatever, what would that law be? Uh, interesting. It's a really interesting one. Okay? I, I must admit, <laughs> what would the one law be? There's some interesting examples around the world. If we look at New Zealand right now, they've mandated that every farmer will know their carbon footprint by the end of the year. I think if we were able to move to a position like that, um, not only would that help the industry's target, but I think that would that would assure then we have some clear baselining to move our industry into a position where it would never again be seen as you know a target for cl climate activism because we you can't change what you can't measure, and if if we began to measure it, uh, I think we'd start to see the change that we need. I suspect that might be happening sooner than you ex expect, uh, Ian, or sooner than we all expect. Uh, Ian McConnell, president of the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Thank you for being on the grill with Beef Central. Thanks very much, Kerry. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, 
I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is the Weekly Grill brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group. 